This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. Thank you for having me. Uh, I appreciate the invitation. So I, several months ago now was the, uh, can you give us a Dharma topic? Which is really my least favorite thing to do because I have no idea what I'm want, you know, what I'm going to talk about or want to talk about. Several months ago, well, so I just said like, you know, rebelling against the habits of mind because I feel like that's the essence of this practice actually. Because we have so many habits, don't we? So that's the title of the talk. We'll see how it goes. Another version of this uh, topic is uh, the liberating power of awareness. So I'm going to start with a poem by Kabir. Oh, this mind you carry on your back. Your actions are like a heavy sack. Strains enough to break your neck. So drop that stupid load. This is the last stop on the road. Stay. Be love's guest. I was reflecting on that as, you know, the sounds as I was, you know, giving instructions about, uh, you know, just being aware of sound. I'm sure you're quite uh, used to that if you come here regularly, right? And actually, every time the every time the clapping happened. It was like an encouragement. Oh, I felt encouraged. Oh, yeah. Just now. Just now. This mind has a mind of its own, doesn't it? Has a mind of its own. It's often unruly, inappropriate. Just thinking what it thinks. I remember when I first realized that, that it's not my mind, it's just the mind. It's just this mind, your mind, our mind, minds. And it helped me to have a, a, I just didn't personalize it as much all of a sudden. It was like, oh, there was some space. So this idea of kind of rebellion or like rebelling against the mind. Rebelling against the mind's tendencies. I believe that this is really the heart of what the Buddha is asking. Saying, okay, first see that the mind is crazy and out of control. That's the first step, right? One of my teachers says that's the first insight. When you sit, so if you're new tonight and you're like, you know, flooding of thoughts and images and memories and aversions and smells and, you know, all the things... It's just the way things are. But when we can see that, when we have some space between it, we're not caught by it, there can be a real liberation from the kind of everyday. 
So a lot of what comes up in meditation, uh, you know, the Buddha talked about or is talked about it with the Buddhist perspective as uh, the hindrances, the things that hinder the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind. The natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind, the resting place. Yet we have these hindrances, these things that get in the way. I'm sure you know them. So don't, don't worry, be easy on yourself about that. Because, you know, until the Buddha's enlightenment, he battled with the hindrances. Until the evening of his uh, freedom, he battled with anger, with wanting, with craving, with ill will, drowsiness. With restlessness or worry, irritation, agitation, doubt, and disbelief. And these are the, the flavors of this mind, of this mind-body complex. And so this kind of theme of the rubber meets the road is really in my opinion, for tonight or this moment anyway, it's really how can we both befriend and rebel? So we're not rebelling against the mind's tendencies towards these hindrances as an enemy, but more as a friend. So I gave the instruction, recognize where the mind goes. And then with a sense of friendliness or kindness with the mind. So toward the mind, we're inclining friendliness and kindness right in that moment of, of being lost. That is where the rubber meets the road. Because you can do that however many hundreds of thousands of times a day. I mean, ten is good. You know. So this, these hindrances, it's important. It's important to reflect on them. I was on a retreat once, long ago, beginning of my uh, practice. And Robert Hall, who is a well-known veteran, Dharma teacher, and also a psychiatrist, retired now, and studied with Fritz Perls. Smart dude. Really like him a lot. I just visited him down in... uh, Mexico. He has a group in in Baja. So if you're ever down there, look him up. So he came out. You know, I had been struggling with the hindrances for several days. He came out one night, and the lights were low, and it was just him. You know, sometimes there's a, a parade of Dharma teachers. It was just him this night. And he said, "So have you figured it out yet?" Of course, I was like, absolutely not. He said, have you figured it out? We're not our thoughts. We're not our feelings. And that was the essence of his Dharma talk. That's pretty much all I heard him say. Because he might have said, you know, spoke for another 45 minutes or so. (laughs) But all that I heard was, you're not your thoughts. 
You're not your feelings. And the moment that that happened, the moment that that sunk in on a deeper level, I was able to see that I don't have to be afflicted by my thoughts and feelings. I don't have to be run by my thoughts and feelings. And actually, now that I can see that, I can even rebel against the tendencies that my thoughts have. And at that particular time, lots of themes of anger, resentment, unworthiness, doubt, tons of doubt, that first retreat. So it gave me a little space. So I wasn't of my thoughts. I was with them. That was really helpful for me. I don't know. So meditation, you know, not only in my view, actually, but in a lot of people's view, this meditation is a fierce practice in the way that it reveals the stark reality of our everyday mind. We're constantly muttering and scheming and planning, wondering under our breath trying to comfort ourselves i think you know this is a strategy i think of of trying to comfort ourselves our internal life is constantly preoccupied with the voices of i like this i don't like that she hurt me he left me how can i get that more of this no more of that just this constant and it's you know it's in the background it's the subtle sometimes it's very foreground can anyone relate to that? Raise your hand if you can relate to that. Yeah, thank you. I'm talking to the right room. Because the important thing is that we can see it. And this is what this practice gives us. This is what's liberating about it. Because if we can't see it, we're just mindlessly grasping like monkeys from one vine to the next vine, from one thought, from one want to the next want. I have a a long-standing relationship with monkeys. I've traveled Asia and Southeast Asia, India. Monkeys are a trip, yeah. But they're very focused on what they want and what they don't want. And so uh, often I'm sure you've heard, you know, they teachers and western dharma teachers often talk about this unruliness or the hindrances is kind of the the monkey mind right the restlessness the jumping back and forth so this is all an attempt to find pleasure and comfort and possibly avoid discomfort or unpleasant thoughts or feelings even situations so Vipassana takes this untrained everyday mind as a not as a natural starting point. So that's the first. So anytime you're you know beginning you beginning meditators tonight or those people who have been doing this for ten years, this is the natural starting point. And you know the wonderful thing about practice is that it's just that. You know, there's that saying from the, the Dalai Lama, right, several years ago. I heard it a long time ago now, but I've been reflecting on it, actually. A student asked, you know, how long will it take before I really notice some progress in my practice? And the Dalai Lama, this was some Western teachers several years ago. And the Dalai Lama 
I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but said something like, you know, it's a good idea to evaluate your practice every 10 years. To not really focus on the, like, where, you know, where am I in my practice? How, how free am I after you've been doing it a year or two years, five years even? 10 years. So that was really helpful for me when I, uh, when it first sunk in. I heard it a few times before I really let it sink in. And it was helpful because I stopped evaluating my practice. And I started just being the practice or doing the practice or exploring the practice instead of evaluating it. Where am I? Because that's the way our Western minds often think, right? And it's not just Western, but it's definitely in our culture, it's in our ethos, this get more now, fast, quick, right? You can look on the internet for, you know, uh, enlightenment now, five easy steps, you know, 99.99. Learn to be a meditation teacher in five weeks, you know? It's just the way we are. It's important, actually, to to recognize that. Okay, yeah, it's just the tendency. You know, the Buddha called it greed, wanting, desire. Desire, unwholesome desire, unskillful desire, grasping, really, craving. So Vipassana takes this untrained everyday mind as a natural starting point and gives a clear and systematic way of developing awareness of this process. Helpful. Helpful. So it's been 20 years now I've been practicing. And just recently I was in meditation and it actually happened a few a few times, a few periods, a few days, a few weeks of just kind of, what's going on in here? I'm going to... The Dalai Lama said I can do it. I waited actually an extra ten years because I'm, you know, particularly stubborn in my mind. And you know what I've come to recognize is that I'm less angry. I'm less quick to judgment. I have a lot less suffering in my life. Not that there isn't difficulty and there hasn't been difficulty, but I have less attachment to the difficulty. And so it, I see it arising and passing away sooner, quicker, you know, days and weeks instead of months and years. I feel much more connected to my heart, to this uh, emotional self that I, in a lot of ways, for a lot of years, as a survival mechanism, denied. One of the topics that I was thinking of focusing on is kind awareness or metta, loving kindness. Super important, right? It's really helpful to focus on seeing the mind and seeing the habits of mind. And equally as important to focus on compassion and loving kindness and the cultivation of that. I denied that for a long time. I was like, I just want wisdom, I want the wisdom to see clearly. I want to get enlightened. There was a craving around that. Although I had no idea what enlightenment meant. (laughs) I thought it meant I could levitate or something, you know. Read people's minds, some kind of cool power. 
what I've come to find is that uh, the balance of both wisdom and compassion is what, exactly what the Buddha taught. And it is liberating. Even the awareness, the liberation, the liberating power of awareness that is found through metta or through karuna, so loving kindness or what I like to think about as uh, positive regard, unconditional positive regard. I think of metta that way because loving kindness is just a little too woo-woo for me. Although I'm a little more open to it now than I was. So I'm not going to talk a whole lot about that, but just to name that, uh, I feel like that's super important. And uh, for a long time in my practice, I, like I said, I denied it. So this bare awareness or attention is defined by Mark Epstein. Mark Epstein wrote several books. He's a psychotherapist and psychiatrist, actually, I think, and a Dharma practitioner, Dharma teacher, multiple traditions. So he talked about this bare awareness or attention as a clear and single-minded awareness of what, it, of what actually happens to us and in us in successive moments of perception. So this, what is happening within me and around me in every given moment? So the challenge that I have for you, and I think the Buddha gave this same challenge, is... How often can you check into that throughout the day? What's happening within me and around me? Not evaluating, not fixing, not problem solving, not judging, just awareness. What's happening here, just now, just this breath? That's my challenge for you. Bare awareness takes the unexamined mind and opens it up by not trying to change anything, but by observing the mind, our emotions, and the body just the way they are. Just the way they are. The Buddha spoke of the power of mindfulness, sati, in a very emphatic way, several times throughout the suttas. I just have a couple Mindfulness, I declare, is all helpful, said the Buddha in the Samyutta Nikaya. Stanza 46, 59, if you want to look it up. All things can be mastered by mindfulness. In the Anguttara Anguttara Nikaya. The third Zen patriarch uh, had this to say, and it stuck out to me. I heard it in a teaching first and then later studied the danza or teaching there. Stop thinking and talking and there's nothing you cannot know. Stop thinking and talking and there's nothing you can't know. That was really helpful. I think it's helpful uh, for us with this kind of intellectualizing that we may tend to do, especially in the Dharma. One of the things I'm really grateful for is when I learned to meditate, I knew nothing about Buddhism. I mean, I knew, you know, in a Chinese restaurant, there's the happy Buddha, you know, put a little quarter on his belly. Maybe you get good fortune or something, good luck. It's really all I knew about the Buddha. And somewhere in Asia, I didn't even know where. But I just learned to practice. I'm really grateful for that. 
because the practice became experiential. And then later, you know, as I started taking philosophy classes, and I started when I was about 16 meditating. So this stop thinking and talking and there's nothing you can't know. It points to the practice, the rubber meets the road doing it, which we're doing. My friend Noah Levine talks about how there's the spiritual revolutionary, the 1% of our population that actually does the practice, that actually practices meditation. Calls it the spiritual one percenters, which is, you know, I don't even know how many. One percent of what, seven or eight billion people is quite a few. Okay. So how might we work with this in our day-to-day life, this present time awareness, this mindfulness, this seeing things as they really are? Love and loss. People die. People leave. How do we go on? How do we go on? As I work with others, you know, one of the things that I do is I'm a, you know, I'm a psychotherapist and a Dharma teacher, and consultant and educator. As I work with people, I come into contact with those who are in denial of the reality of change, in denial of anicca, impermanence, that which arises, passes away. And in turn, cause much suffering for themselves. So I'm not saying don't feel pain or that you're not going to have pain and loss. The Buddha never claimed that. But made a very uh, uh, differentiated between pain and suffering. Suffering being when we cling or crave for things to be other than they are. You know, there's the story of the two darts right there. There's the dart of life or the arrow. Sometimes it's described the arrow of life. Pain. First Noble Truth talks all about it, all the ways. Not getting what we want. Or getting what we don't want. It's a particular kind of pain, right? So then suffering being when we push it away or grasp. This is another way of thinking about the relationship between pain and suffering. There's a story uh, I heard some years ago. It's a Zen story. There was this uh, Zen priest who was, you know, the headmaster of this... um, the abbot of this monastery and he had all of these monks that were ardent in their practice and he was always talking about seeing through the illusion and one day he was off at the edge of the monastery and he was weeping crying and some of the younger monks that came in they were like you know abbot sensei what's the matter in the sense, they said, uh, you know, I lost my brother. My brother died. And, he, and the, uh, the young monks were like, but it's all illusion. That nothing really, it's just 
conditions arising and passing away? And he said, yes. But this is a very painful illusion. And it was that moment of teaching of like, yeah, we're still of this world. There still is pain and grief and loss and separation. How can we be with it actually? Turn toward it, not away from it. The instinctual part of our think, psyche, our ego, is to turn away or we'll be overwhelmed. So it's important, I think, to uh, just to see that, you know. And then the uh, the Buddha's teaching on the mindfulness of impermanence. So helpful in this, you know, that which arises passes away as we experience the pains of life, old age, sickness, death. No escaping it. So there's a few ways of looking at this uh, mindfulness or this awareness being aware of its arising. So being aware of the arising of really all kinds of mental fabrications, thoughts and feelings. And then there's the establishment. Once we've established mindfulness, we can develop mindfulness. And this is less about what is arising and passing away, but more the minute changes, which is really, it's a, it's a nuanced practice. Right? I like actually, I think working with pain can be really helpful. Chronic pain or just the pain, the Dharma pain or the pain of sitting. Seeing how it's changing constantly. Doesn't feel like it all the time, right? <laughs> ten years, remember? Ten years of practice. Those are a couple things I was thinking about. So the Buddha talked of this development of mindfulness. It's better to live a single day seeing the rapid arising and passing away of all phenomena than to live a hundred years not seeing It's pretty weighty, pointing to the liberating power of this awareness and how we need to rebel against our tendencies to numb out, to check out, to be on our iPhones or work 80 hours a week or, you know. So this liberating power of seeing clearly, it reorients our mind towards freedom of attachment and in turn suffering. Freedom from attachment. Non-clinging. I heard uh, you you had a study or you had a a talk recently on the four foundations of mindfulness. So this is the beginning and the end of the four foundations of mindfulness, which I think talks specifically and emphatically about how necessary this is. This is the only way, folks, he says monks or bhikkhus, but this is the only way, folks, for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of pain and grief, for reaching the right path, 
or the attainment of Nibbana, namely these four foundations of mindfulness. I believe what he's saying is the only way is to start by seeing clearly our relationship to our thoughts and our feelings, this body, this life, our attachment to it, our aversion towards it. We have to start there again and again. The only way out is through. So I have a few. How many people have heard the acronym RAIN? Okay. So I'll just, I think this is a really helpful way actually to work with it. I'll just briefly go through it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because most of you already know. RAIN is a, a way of working with the content and non-identifying it, non-identifying with it. So recognize, you need to recognize what's happening. That's what I've basically been talking about for the last 20 minutes or so. (laughs) Accept it. Accept that it's there. Not that it's taking over, but accepting that it is present. There is whatever, pain, sickness, loss, story, Habitual response. You have to have some acceptance. And then begin to investigate. So then we're turning actually away from the mind. This is part of the rebellious quality. We're rebelling against the mind's tendency to just do the rat race. Thinking, thinking, thinking. Thinking about thinking. Thinking about thinking about thinking. How many people do that? Yeah. The engineers in the room, perhaps. So investigate. How does it feel in this body? Where can I feel sorrow or grief or loneliness or agitation or anger or joy? Where where can it be felt? And how does it change? Then this non-identification or sometimes called disidentification. One of the ways that I actually uh, have been talking about it more recently is uh, non-personalizing. How can I be with experience without being overwhelmed by it or overcome or lost in it? This non-personalizing, disidentify. It's a very complicated thing to do. It's at the crux, actually, of the teaching of anatta, not self. If we can see how how... We're not our thoughts and we're not our feelings. Then we can begin to see how it changes. But if we're identified with it, then we're identified with it as a self. As an I am my anger. I am this pain. I am even this joy or this am this meditation, you know. Anytime we're clinging or identifying, we're creating a sense of self. I am spiritual. So this process can develop, or this is a process of developing, a non-judgmental awareness to our experience and can be liberating and healing. So I'm going to read a... Of two things. 
It's called Habits of Mind. It's by Mahagosananda. Mahagosananda was a Cambodian monk uh, who was alive in the time of the Khmer Rouge. And he was in, he exiled, you know, to Thailand during the Khmer Rouge because they were killing monks and nuns and educated and just, you know, this horrible genocide. So Mahagosananda uh, was training in Thailand and came back after the Khmer Rouge lost power and fell out of power. And, and he went on a, a mission to, and he was walking around to villages and, and teaching the Buddha Dharma. And there was a lot of anger, a lot of frustration, a lot of vengeance. Kill the Khmer Rouge. Look at what they've done to us. Their own people. And so there's one particular, the, the way I understand it is that Mahagosananda actually went back to his village that he grew up in and lived in. And so many of the elders you know, were, that were dead had died. So many, all the people he knew. And he gave a teaching there. And this is part of his teaching around forgiveness and around uh, loving kindness and compassion. So he said this. The thought manifests as word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into the habit. Habit hardens into character. Character gives birth to destiny. So watch your thoughts with care. And let it spring from love born out of respect for all beings. So I believe he's saying rebel against the tendencies of greed, hatred, and delusion. Rebel against the tendencies of greed, hatred, and delusion. There's another. This is from the Buddha. It's a great little book called The Teachings of the Buddha by Jack Cornfield. It's my little uh, cheat sheet. Take it with me pretty much everywhere I go. This is from the Dhammapada. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world speak or act with an impure mind or unskillful mind. And trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world speak or act with a pure mind or a skillful mind. And happiness will follow you as your shadow unshakable. How can a troubled mind understand the way? Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. But once mastered, no one can help you as much, not even your father or your mother. We are what we think. With our thoughts, we make the world. So this awareness of what's happening within us and around us in any given moment is the key to not being a slave to our thoughts. Learning to rebel against the tendencies. No matter, you know, we may 
The precepts are also extremely helpful, right? They help us from spilling over. And so that's intention. That's also what Mahagosananda is saying. He's talking quite a bit about intention. So this final quote from Ajahn Samedo, Longpore Samedo, the uh, lineage holder of my tradition, the Theravadan tradition, Thai forest tradition. Uh, he wrote a book called uh, Intuitive Awareness. So he had this to say. Awareness is your refuge. Awareness of the changingness of feelings, of attitudes, of moods, of material change. Stay with that because it is a refuge that is indestructible. It's not something that changes. It's a refuge that can be trusted in. This refuge is not something that you create. It's not a creation. It's not an ideal. It's very practical and very simple, but easily overlooked or not noticed. When you're mindful, you're beginning to notice it's like this. It's like this. It's like this is one of the simplest and difficult practices. And it points again and again to the ever-changing phenomena. Which when we can see this, when we can be open to this, which is exactly what this, this uh, practice does. It helps us to see moments of change. Moments of openness. So we're not so locked in. So I call my group in Santa Cruz Rebel Dharma because I believe that the essence of the Buddhist teaching is, and actually the essence of the Buddhist life was rebellious, was revolutionary. And that he is, it had to have been, it's, it's carried on for so long. And so his challenge to us is to rebel against our own tendencies toward greed, hatred, and delusion. And incline the mind towards openness, freedom from suffering, loving kindness, care, compassion. And equanimity, balance. Okay. Let's end with a little compassion, a little loving kindness. Metta. One of my friends calls this the after-dinner mint of the Dharma. (laughs) After the hard work. So just sitting relaxed, allowing the Eyes to close. Connecting with the breath in the body. This heart space or center. Emotional center. Breathing in 
silently saying the phrase, may I be happy. May I be happy. So from the head to the heart and the heart to the head. May I be peaceful. May I be peaceful. May I be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May I be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. Oh, this mind you carry on your back. Your actions are like a heavy sack. No wonder that your shoulders ache. Another strains enough to break your neck. So drop this stupid load. This is the last stop on the road where you can find rest. Stay. Be love's guest. May any goodness that's come from our practice, may this goodness be dedicated to the freedom from suffering for all beings everywhere. May we all be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.